Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. It's been an incredible week in the national park system. The coronavirus pandemic has had an unprecedented impact on the parks, with some parks closing in their entirety, some just shuttering visitor centers and other public facilities, and some seeing even their lodgings close down. Campgrounds in more and more parks are closing almost by the day. Find our latest coverage of the impacts coronavirus is having on the national park system at nationalparkstraveler.org. The impact of coronavirus on the national park system is expanding day by day. Unlike the impacts partial or full government shutdowns have on the parks, government funding won't solve those created by the growing spread of coronavirus overnight. To take a look at how coronavirus is affecting the parks and the National Park Service, for this week's show, we've gathered three experts, including former National Park Service Director John Jarvis, who combined have more than a century of experience with the national parks and public lands. And Lynn Riddick continues her tour of San Antonio Mission's National Historical Park with a visit to Mission Espada. We are experiencing an unprecedented pandemic across the United States with the spread of coronavirus. And it hasn't left the National Park System or the National Park Service untouched. Indeed, every day brings new closures across the parks, and there are a lot of unknowns yet to surface. Will the National Park Service workforce be broadly stricken by the disease? What about volunteers in the parks? How will seasonal hiring be affected? To explore those questions and seek some answers, we've invited former National Park Service Director John Jarvis, Phil Francis, the head of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks and a Park Service veteran of more than four decades, and John Freemuth, a former park ranger who holds the Cecil D. Andrus Endowed Chair for Environment and Public Lands at Boise State University to discuss these issues. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you. Hi, Kurt. John Jarvis, we'll start with you. Um, Initial thoughts on on what the National Park Service is confronted with with this epidemic. Well, thanks for uh, getting uh, these folks together to to talk about this. I I do think it is unprecedented. Um, The the Park Service is no stranger to emergencies, Um, certainly uh, hurricanes and volcanoes and uh, and even uh, occasional uh, disease outbreaks like the hantavirus in Yosemite. But I don't think we've ever experienced sort of all parks at the same time, uh, and also sort of the uncharted waters that are in front of us with the, the ramp up that we are expecting a surge of cases across the United States. If we look at the data from how the coronavirus has has grown exponentially in other nations, we're, we're expecting something similar here, and so. The Park Service has been, I think, quite slow to respond to this, sort of lagging. And part of that is, I think, driven by the current administration's also slow response. But uh, this is unprecedented. And I do think you're going to see a significant number of, of closures across the system, closures of facilities, visitor centers, uh, homes, buildings, all of that. But I, the question of whether the parks are going to close is still a, an open one at this point. Phil, um, 
it was just uh, about a year or so ago that um, the parks were confronted by the partial government shutdown and, and how that impacted the, the park system and the park service. This is a totally different animal, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, every employee in the National Park Service is affected. Not, and John just mentioned we we're not uh, we have plenty of experience with emergency situations, both localized in parks as well as regionally. But we certainly haven't had a situation where every single employee, the administrative people who are back in the offices, and the volunteers, our cooperating associations, uh, the public at large, everyone is at risk, and so. This is this is a night and day different situation, and I think some decisions have been made that need to be reversed and uh, should be done soon. Uh, I think if you go out to Utah and you'll see what's happened where people were encouraged to go out and visit your parks, as has been done in New York State, they've actually, I think with good intentions, created a more hazardous situation. Mm-hmm. And so we certainly need to uh, we need to review quickly uh, the decisions that have been made and continue to delegate as much as possible as quickly as we can. And of course, out in, in Utah, uh, some of the state health uh, officials have tried to reverse that uh, stampede, if you will, out to the national parks by urging folks to stay away from the Moab area and uh, Arches National Park and Canyonlands National Park, of course. Yeah, and I noticed in the in the news that the uh, local uh, businesses have, have also, and, and government leaders have also expressed extreme concern about the risk uh, to the citizens there, and 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 also their lack of capacity. Should um, too many people become infected? Yeah, that's that's a, a critical concern, especially in, in Moab, um, where the hospital has 17 rooms and I think uh, three ventilators, um, and they're dealing with people who come down there and, and go out hiking or mountain biking or off-road vehicle riding or river running and come into the hospital with, with injuries from those activities, and the last thing they want is to have all their, their um, doctors tied up dealing with those injuries and then have a, a bunch of coronavirus cases come in. Dr. Freemuth, from from your standpoint, um, what tools does uh, Interior and the Park Service have to 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 cope with this, and and do you think they're being properly implemented? Well, to me, just watching what seems to be, and not just the Park Service, but sister agencies like what the BLM has gone through, there seems to be sort of an ad hoc, unfocused centralization uh, of policy. The first thing I would have done, and I know John would have done it, he was director, is find out what's going on from the professionals in the field. What are their concerns? What are they seeing? Vet the idea of go visit your parks in this situation. I think a a better message might have been, it's okay to be outside. See a lot of that in Idaho where we don't really have big units of the park system. But there just seems to be a very uh, sloppy and no real strategy that's emerged except let's spend $3 trillion on this coming out of the administration. And that that's reflected down into public land management. And, you know, my experience in the Moab area, it'd be that's, you know, we got spring break coming up on top of all this. So 
everything we just talked about there about what should be done there, I would totally agree with this is not a time for that concentration of people in that area. Um, Director Jarvis, obviously you've been in the director's chair for uh, uh, two terms under President Obama, and, and while hindsight is always twenty twenty, should park superintendents have been given full authority earlier on to manage the parks as they see fit? Unequivocally, yes. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, the concept that uh, the folks back in Washington could be making individual uh, decisions about what to close and what to restrict is just pretty, pretty ludicrous. I mean, I saw the form that they were having to fill out. You know, the, the park superintendents under the Code of Federal Regulations and the compendium have the authority to close portions of parks for public safety. And, you know, a superintendent of Yellowstone can close a trail if there's a grizzly bear or if there's a fire or whatever. And the <clears throat> administration rescinded that authority uh, pulled it back to Washington and then created this laborious three-page form that they had to be filled out, signed by the superintendent, signed by the regional director, and then signed by the, the, the deputy director, David Vela, before they would be allowed <clears throat> to even close or restrict the public in light of the spread of the coronavirus. And that's just crazy. I mean, there's you know thousands and thousands of places in parks where public could aggregate and come into contact and employees in contact with this, uh, with this spread. And uh, fortunately they reversed that and returned the authority to the park superintendents, which was a smart move, a good move, but late. And so, uh, and maybe too late in some cases. I mean, I think a decision, a broad decision about do you close all the parks is a Washington decision that that would have to be done in consultation with the attorneys and others in DC. But at the local level, you know, shutting down parks, components of parks in order to protect the visitor and the park staff is, should be made locally. Now I've been told that um, the messaging for this situation has to be approved by interior staff, not park service staff. And, and certainly um, I've tried to get an interview with uh, uh, David Vela about the situation and um, haven't had any success yet. Director, can you tell us about the political pressure that is coming down from Interior onto, you know, career Park Service staff and how they're trying to manage this? Well, I think that in many ways, this is no different than, you know, during the shutdown where all communications uh, by park superintendents were uh, pulled back to Washington and, uh, you know, you and many other folks who were interested uh, in talking directly to a park superintendent about what's going on, uh, we're not allowed to do that. And so there is enormous pressure on park superintendents and, and certainly there can be consequences. Uh, we've already seen our entire senior executive service cohort of the National Park Service forced to move and, and many of them forced into retirement. And so there, you know, there is a sort of Damocles here uh, to the field if they step out of line uh, and um, and speak. Phil, does that pressure, I guess, uh, cascade down to the, the superintendents, as, as John just said? Oh, for can, sure. Can, I mean, you, can you push back? Uh, <laughs> I can remember uh, when I was at the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and I did a press statement. I actually made a press statement, as I was called by a reporter, and I suggested that the National Park Service needed more funding. Well, 
And the next thing I know, I'm getting a call from the secretary's office. <laughs> and uh, a congressman had called to complain that I was lobbying for money and violating uh, government ethics. And so, <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's, uh, it makes quite an impression when you get a call from the secretary's office or the director's office and to tell you that you've done wrong and cease and desist. And then that combined with uh, situations where people have been fired or forced out, you know, it'll, people will be extremely cautious. But what I think that will do is that will, those people who feel very strongly about their point will simply go around the system and you'll start getting leaks to reporters and uh, expressions through uh, partners such as NPCA and other organizations that will have to carry the message uh, for those folks. And so something is lost in that process. And so I've always felt that that we should be able to speak the truth. Uh, sometimes the, defining the truth is hard because there's different points of view. But uh, I think people should be allowed to speak freely and without threat of, and without intimidation. You know, to your point, um, one superintendent did tell me that um, they were um, really astonished at the direction coming from uh, uh, Interior and that they predicted a, a revolt in the ranks this week as soon as uh, the decision was made to give the superintendents the authority Almost instantaneously, we started seeing closures of visitor centers and restrooms, and now it's up to restaurants and some lodges and some entire park units and uh, campgrounds and whatnot. Um, it, it, is there a point where a superintendent has, I mean, Phil, you put in 40 years, and, and John, you put in, did you put in 40 years plus? Yeah, 40. Yeah. So when you put in that many years, do you get to the point where you say, I don't care what the ramifications are going to be for my career. I'm going to do the best thing for the park and, and for the park visitor. Well, um, I'll well, take that, Phil. Ahead, if you want to, Phil, you can jump in there. Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think we affectionately called it, you know, when you got your mad money, uh, which means you're, you know, you, you have enough money <laughs> stored away. But when you get really, really mad, you can, uh, you can you know, pull the pin uh, <clears throat> on it. And, um, you know, I've certainly been there a couple of times uh, under previous administrations uh, when uh, during the Bush administration, when they were rewriting management policies, there were, there were a couple of moments there when I was ready to do the full kamikaze. And I think there are a lot of folks out there that are, that are willing to take that kind of risk. You know, it, it's more complicated this day and age, you know, with, with uh, you know, uh, retirement and, and family and and jobs and, you know, kids in school. And, and so those risks are, are, you know, risk reward or discussions, I'm sure, going on over, over the dinner table in, in some of these managers' homes, whether to, to go for it or not. And, um, and I think that, you know, the fact that they finally granted the, the superintendents the authority to make these decisions, you know, a lot of these decisions will be really good and help the employee and uh, to, I mean, there, there are certainly cases in the field where, you know, if you're a snowplow operator at Crater Lake, you know, you come to work at four in the morning and you get in your truck and you, you plow snow for, for eight hours and you don't talk to anybody. And there's no real reason that, that person shouldn't come to work and, uh, and get paid. Uh, but then there are frontline positions that, you know, talking to the public, uh, 
so all of that's got to be figured out. And you know, what is what is reasonable? Uh, you know, cleaning of restrooms and you know the exposure of our of our maintenance staff uh, to uh, to potential risk uh, is incredibly important. And I think the park superintendents are going to can now make those kinds of decisions um, on the ground. Phil, did you ever have enough mad money? <laughs> oh, yeah. well, I did. But I tell you, you, you have to go through a process. And I remember I went through the SES uh, Canada Development Program once, and at the uh, graduation ceremony, there was a fellow from the Department of the Interior. I think his name was Robert Lamb. And uh, he gave us some good advice that day. He said, you know, as you advance in your career, and you're going to find yourself looking at a situation where you have been asked to do something that is in conflict with your values. And then you really have to have to decide what to do to do the right thing or to maybe look at the longer term, you know, not fall on your sword today, but come back and fight again later. And so those kinds of, I think John is right. You've got to think about this. You need to make a good decision and you shouldn't make an emotional decision, but, uh, but I've certainly been there. Um, oh yeah. I can think of several instances where I was there, but, uh, but I stayed around to, uh, you know, trying to, trying to get the right answer in the longer term. We've been talking today with uh, former National Park Service Director John Jarvis, Phil Francis, the head of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks, and a Park Service veteran himself of more than four decades, and John Freemuth, former park ranger who holds the Cecil D. Andrus Endowed Chair for Environment and Public Lands at Boise State University, discussing the coronavirus epidemic across America and how it's impacted the national parks and the National Park Service. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. National Parks Traveler, a 501c3 nonprofit media organization, depends on its readers and listeners for support in providing coverage of the national parks and protected areas and the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Please support our efforts with a donation. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org and click the Donate button. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles off the Florida Keys, just very well might be the most difficult park to reach in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, scuba diving, fishing, and kayaking. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, 
and history in the brick walls of a Civil War-era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. All right, we're back now with our roundtable discussion about coronavirus in the National Parks and the National Park Service. You know, one thing I've been wondering about, any thoughts on the decision by Interior Secretary Bernhardt to, to waive entrance fees and invite people to come out to the national parks? And, and at the same time, we've got this messaging from, from the White House saying, you know, no groups larger than 10. And we've got the, the health officials in Utah saying, please stay away from our national parks and Moab specifically because, you know, we can't handle a sudden influx. W- was that a great decision? And should they continue to, to offer that out there, hold that out there, free, free entrance to the parks? Well, part of it's it's a mixed message. I mean, anybody I could see this on the ta- on late night TV. Wait a minute, you're just told everybody you waived the entrance fees, but all the visitor centers are closed. I mean, it's just they don't think a lot of this stuff through. It seems really ad hoc, and parts of the government aren't talking to other parts, which usually happens in a crisis like this, and so. It just seems like the message is not well thought out in terms of which way are you going with all of this? Why don't you slow down and actually talk to some professionals? But of course, to me, that's part of the problem. That's deliberate. They don't necessarily want to talk to the professionals. In fact, that's part of the strategy to sort of wreck the institutional memory if you can. Yeah, I would jump in on that too. I agree with uh, with John that you know, the Park Service has extraordinary capacity and professionals to help evaluate this kind of decision. One is they, they have the embedded uniform public health service, a long-term partnership with these professionals that are distributed across the park system. They are, they're trained in public health. They have been with the Park Service for almost 100 years, and they're, part of their job is to then to advise the Park Service around uh, disease outbreaks like the hantavirus, where they were absolutely essential in us controlling that that outbreak in Yosemite. The second is we have these all-risk teams that you can put together and really sort of evaluate the the, the current conditions and what should be done, just as we would do with was Hurricane Katrina or Sandy or you know whatever you know major wildfires. And then third, something that Dr. Gary Macklis and I put together. It's called the Strategic Sciences Group. And we used it in uh, the Gulf oil spill and we used it in Hurricane Sandy, where you basically bring together the top scientists in, in the field on this particular issue. You put them in a room and you start posing questions about the cascading impacts of this thing and what would be recommended in terms of taking action now that could perhaps mitigate those downstream impacts. I don't see any of that happening. And that's really where the decision-making and the advice to the manager should be happening. They should be standing up these experts and professionals and really advising them so that it isn't ad hoc and incoherent uh, as we are observing. To to that point, Phil Francis, um, is enough being done to protect the park employees on the front lines and the volunteers and and the concession workers who, you know, in many cases are are living in dormitories and in close contact and... uh, you know, you've got the, the Park Service employees, you know, we're seeing more and more visitor centers closing down. And so you don't have that 
contact. Um, I, I did read at um, Great Smoky Mountains National Park, a park that you once were superintendent of, that they've, they've tried to put a, a rope cordon up to, to keep people uh, a foot or two away from the desk. Any idea is enough being done to protect the park employees and volunteers from catching this disease? Well, it's hard to say. I would say it's probably different in each park, you know, and it's probably up to the local superintendents and and uh, field supervisors who are trying to work through this. But but it should be done, you know. And when and when the secretary made the decision about uh, free entrance into a park, I would like to think that that was done because they didn't want the interchange of money and so forth at the at a park entrance station between visitors hundreds or thousands of visitors who may be coming in and those employees and, and the and the goal was to protect employees. But I don't I'm not sure that I never I don't think that was the motivation. I think it had more to do with public relations and giving people an opportunity to go outside and there's been some unintended consequences for sure. There's been pictures down in Florida with spring breakers, hundreds if not thousands of them all together. And I know our employees are really concerned about these decisions, and I think they are ready to revolt. So it's going to be difficult because they need our employees need training. They need tools. They need things that can't be provided in the short term for a variety of reasons, including funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think until such time as we've got that capacity and we've done our homework and we've properly trained and oriented our employees, I think we should be closing to protect our employees. At the same time, that's protecting the public. Director Jarvis, if if you were still sitting in Washington, what would be your recommendation to Interior? I mean, should there be a much, much more aggressive approach to managing this in the parks, say closing all park lodges and restaurants, or even entire parks? Well, I think that as I said, first, I would want to consult with all of these professionals on this and look at the cascading impacts. Um, I think that the parks have a role in helping flatten, you know, so-called flattening the curve. And that, you know, a lot of the reports that I've read about are getting ahead of this as a nation is going to be on minimizing contact. Um, and that one prevention can prevent you know, multiple downstream impacts. So I think the parks have a role in this. And I think at this point, you know, assuming that their advice uh, from the professionals would be to close, I would say shut them down mm-hmm. at this point. And, uh, you know, keep staff on, of course, uh, mm-hmm. that obviously with proper precautions and, and as Phil said, with the proper protective equipment, whatever they have is probably limited in terms of supply. You know, the, the, one of the issues, and it was sort of implied, but if you leave the parks open, the public are going to come. And, and based on our experience with the government shutdown, there were impacts to park resources. And so park employees are going to stay on to prevent that. You'd hope. I know park service people. They will stay. <laughs> uh, yeah, they, it, there's, a, there's a deep ingrained sort of mission responsibility to these places. And, uh, you know, they, they will self, self-risk. self I mean, we know that from what they do on a day-to-day basis. And, and w- what we would be doing is 
putting them at greater risk by these kinds of decisions. Um, I would I would want to, if I was back in Washington, to just draw a line in the sand on that this is not political. This is we are not making these decisions with political influence or anything or economics or any of that. This is this is about protection uh, of the park uh, employees, about all of our partners, as was mentioned, our volunteers, our concessioners, and the like. I will say though, and I think uh, Dr. Freemuth mentioned this, that going outside is still viable and people, uh, that is an option for a lot of people. It's if you can't do anything else, you can go outside as long as you maintain some social distancing. But I, but for the most part, most of our national parks are, are destination rather than next door uh, mm -hmm. where you could, you could experience it. As I said earlier, hindsight is, is easy to read. Looking forward, any thoughts on what we might envision in the national park system this summer in places like Acadia or Glacier or Yellowstone, Grand Teton, Shenandoah, and on and on? Kurt, I think, I mean, we, this is where we need to watch what's happening in terms of the so-called curve. I mean, some people are projecting out to 18 months. Other people aren't. Let's let the experts and the modelers, you know, show where they think that's going. And then hopefully the people who make decisions see that and try to get ahead of the visitation curve. And that your example here to start telling people way ahead of time, this is, you know, this is getting worse come some June or July. Now, it may not, but a lot of the evidence is that we're on the cusp of either becoming Italy or uh, getting a handle on it, and we simply don't know. So we can't predict that. What I, what I, and I know the right people are still around, at least say this, whether they're in the government or not, I don't know, is get ahead of this right now because people are making those plans right now. And, and also making those plans are, are, are seasonals, no? Do we see a, a problem in, in getting enough seasonal employees to, to run the parks this summer because of concerns over spreading the disease, catching the disease? So I don't know for sure, but I would guess so because I think that schools are closing now for colleges. Other yeah. schools are closing now for a period of time, and then they're going to go back into session maybe. And that's probably going to cut into the summertime months. I know that uh, some park supervisors have already begun working, you know, seasonal search, and they're finding that people aren't as available as they typically would be. So I think it could have an impact for sure. And not knowing what the curve is going to do, if it's going to be an extended flatter curve or a spike. You know, it's really sort of hard to say, but I hope there's a team of people back in Washington who were working on this. As John mentioned, I think that's a great idea, John. And, and they need to have other resource professionals, um, protection professionals working alongside with them to, to develop a plan and maybe more than one plan, given the uh, given what actually happens on the ground. And of course, a uh, uh, related Potential complication is is whether concessionaires can find enough help to change the the, the bedding in, in the old faithful inn or, or clean the restrooms or, or serve the meals. I know um, uh, the concessionaires are worried that uh, this is going to be a problem throughout the entire year, not just for the next month or two. And so, you know, what will be the odds of them being able to hire enough staff? 
Yeah, I think we, you know, this is, as we mentioned early on, this is kind of uncharted territory. You know, the parks, at least in terms of visitation, exist within a larger sort of travel economy. Uh, and, you know, the airlines, the hotels, the restaurants, the bar, the bus systems, all of those are being impacted uh, by this, this pandemic. And so it's really hard to predict what it's all going to look like, uh, you know, come normal summer season. I, I would guess that visitation will be significantly lower in the parks because people are just sticking close to home because of fear of travel. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you go online and look at the, at the information for the airlines and all the stuff that they're suggesting, but then you look pictures of the airports, they're empty. And, you know, clearly that, you know, what's interesting about this is that <clears throat> from a, my perspective, and this is a good example is when the Statue of Liberty was closed after uh, 9-11 uh, and then the administration wouldn't reopen it. And uh, until we came in on the Obama administration and we reopened it, it's closing is a relatively easy decision in a way. Reopening is a much more complicated uh, decision because at what, at what risk factors are you considering when you reopen something that has been closed? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what responsibility are you taking on when you reopen a facility and then somebody gets, gets, contracts the virus as a result of that? And I think this is the next big sort of complicated question is how we reopen things, schools, travel, bus lines, you know, metro systems and parks. It's going to be uh, very, very complicated. Yeah. yeah. It is. I think to speak to that for a second, Kurt, if you will, think about Yosemite Valley and think about where they house concession employees. I know that there were over 2,000 concession employees housed in Yosemite at one time. And they they live in tent cabins. They live more than one person to a room. They're coming from different places or different ages. They have some people are healthier than others. Uh, Just think about the protocol that needs to be developed to make sure they are safe as well as the public that they're serving are safe. Over time, it's going to be really hard. Dr. Freemuth, um, there's obviously work in Washington right now to put together uh, stimulus packages and bailout packages. Have you heard anything about how um, the National Park Service might be helped out? Has, has any talk been given to that? I haven't seen that. I've been kind of scanning the stories about what's sort of being talked about in these packages. and you know, than a criticism of just throwing money at things. But John or Phil may, through their own connections, have heard more whether there's specific money in there for the parks. I don't know how, I would doubt it at this point, but I could be very wrong about that. Somebody might have actually thought about that. Two things that I think that come to mind in that question is one is that, you know, some of these, I haven't dived into the total details, but some of the bills have a uh, paid leave, um, which would be would apply to our concessioners, some of our partners, the travel and tourism industry, hotel, restaurant kind of workers, which would be good uh, because that will keep their businesses and those individuals viable maybe through this. So that that's a positive. For the most part, most you know the Park Service employees, at least the career employees, you know have 
paid leave and have sick leave and can take that. And there are fairly liberal policies uh, for uh, you know, extending those kinds of leave for the, for the federal worker. I would think that at some point when this sort of settles a little bit, that there will be an infrastructure stimulus package. If you remember, the American Recovery Act was a stimulus package that came out of Congress in the last recession uh, to put sort of America back to work. And uh, there could be the potential, I know there was some bills moving through Congress that are probably stalled now around addressing the maintenance backlog in parks. And I don't anticipate anything happening on that now, but maybe you know a year from now, um, that would probably get dusted off and they would look at it as an opportunity to sort of re-jump the American economy. Phil, have you or any of your members heard anything about uh, Park Service aid? I have. I have. We, there are some people working on that subject. I don't know how far along we are with that, but there have been conversations between advocacy groups and the Appropriations Committee with regard to how the National Park Service may be communicating with the Appropriations Committee and looking for insertion of the National Park Service in the package. I don't know, but but uh, there are some people talking about this uh, as we speak. Certainly grim times for um, the national parks and uh, how they're being handled through this crisis. Um, gentlemen, I, I appreciate your thoughts and insights today, and um, hopefully this is a, a short-term blip and, and won't linger on throughout the entire year. Yeah, Thanks, Kurt. Thanks, Thanks Kurt. Thanks, John. Yeah, thanks a lot. We've been talking today with uh, former National Park Service Director John Jarvis, Phil Francis, the head of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks, and John Freemuth, a former park ranger who holds the Cecil D. Andrus Endowed Chair for Environment and Public Lands at Boise State University, looking at the coronavirus epidemic and how it's impacting the national parks. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. RV Share provides not only an option for renters to enjoy the perks of RV travel without having to buy one, but an opportunity for owners to earn income by renting theirs out. You'll find everything from large and luxurious Class A RVs all the way to small and easy-to-tow pop-up campers. You can even use their filters to find an RV that is dog-friendly or one that will be delivered right to your campground. 
Visit RVShare.com to start your search for the perfect RV rental or to list your RV. San Antonio summers are harsh. Residents endure relentless heat, long periods without rain, and summer nights that don't really cool off. Drought conditions require people to observe water restrictions on a fairly regular basis. Yet, despite that, you turn on the faucet and out comes clean, fresh water that is seemingly endless. As I continue my series on the San Antonio Mission's National Historical Park, I wonder about water. The native people endured those harsh, hot summers, too. They lived along the spring-fed San Antonio River because of their need for a reliable water source. The Spanish and their Franciscan delegates came to present-day South Texas to establish a series of missions to spread the Catholic faith and secure the land for Spain. When they arrived, they raised the acquisition of water to a whole new level. So I've come to Misión San Francisco de la Espada, or Mission Espada. Positioned along a bluff on the San Antonio River, Mission Espada is the perfect setting to talk about water. Founded originally in East Texas, Mission Espada was relocated here in 1731. It's the southernmost mission in the chain here, just two miles from its next closest neighboring mission. I find it to be the quaintest of the four within the park. The centerpiece is a small church made from limestone and brick that have weathered and darkened over the years. On the upper facade of the church, a triangular trio of iron bells framed in stone arches is especially charming. When you envision what a mission church might look like, this could very well be what comes to mind, certainly what you might see in an old western or even a taco commercial. But this is the real deal. Just outside the mission walls is what appears to be a water-filled drainage ditch running parallel with the road. And you might not have paid it any mind, except that you realize it hasn't rained lately. You take a closer look and notice that the water is flowing like a narrow creek with underwater algae-laced grasses swaying in the current. What you're actually looking at is a small segment of what was once a huge, ingenious system of trenches known as acequias, spelled A-C-E-Q-U-I-A. Acequias, dams, sluice gates, and aqueducts were all built around here to channel water from the river to irrigate mission fields and ranches. The Spanish knew how to get the job done. They relied on colossal physical exertion from hundreds of native people. And the most amazing thing is that they built over 50 miles of acequias. That's 5050 miles. So I've come back to talk with park ranger and educational coordinator Tom Castanos to get his historical perspective. Hi, Tom. Thanks for talking with me again today. Sure, my pleasure. I want to talk about the history of the acequias, mm-hmm. aqueducts, and the ancient water systems. Mm-hmm. I believe the Romans, the Moors, the Spanish all had their hands in the development of these systems. Correct. Can you give us a quick history? Yeah. So, so the word itself, the root is in an Arabic word. This is technology that was transferred to Spain during the 
original conquest by the Muslim people from North Africa. So this is Roman slash Greek Egyptian technology that's brought to the to Spain. And then after the reconquest in the 1490s, Spain inherited this technology, which then was brought to the New World as they expanded over here. You know, I think one thing that, that always comes to mind when you talk about farming here in South Texas, it's very similar to farming in uh, Mediterranean Europe. The weather is similar, the rocky soil, the low amounts of rain. So any technology that worked well in North Africa, Southern Europe is going to work great here. Is there anything mysterious about how the uh, acequias were built? I wouldn't say mysterious, but I, I just think as in so many of the instances with these things, we can't begin to appreciate the just backbreaking labor it took to put them in place. Again, nearly 50 miles of ditches uh, built over less than a 10-year period, dug in soil that's like digging in concrete. We go and dig one little hole in the backyard for some plant we buy at the garden store, and then we retreat inside to air conditioning and margaritas. These people with much more rudimentary equipment are digging this, but they're digging it for their lives because this was what was going to supply the water for the crops that would make it possible for a large population to live in one place. Now, did the Franciscans start the mission irrigation system as soon as they arrived? Was it part of the whole Spain master plan for the mission development? Absolutely. And did they rely on engineers from Spain to map it out? To the best of my knowledge, the friars are being trained in that technology in their colleges in Zacatecas and Carretero, so they become the engineers. Again, there's there's deep appreciation for how bright these men were and how far someone being literate can go versus the vast majority of European society at the time that was not literate. So when you gained the opportunity to read, you became astronomer, hydrologist, physician, you know, all of the knowledge of the world was available to you. So perhaps a few specialists, but by and large, I think it's the friars themselves that lay out a lot of these uh, networks. Do you suppose they were working uh, side by side with the indigenous people and actually digging the trenches? Maybe, maybe. But again, the labor force is going to be almost exclusively native. The first priority when the Spanish settled around here was building a diversion dam to contain and direct the water to a main canal called the Acequia Madre. From there, a series of smaller acequias were dug out, following the contours of the river in a gradual slope. Sluice gates made from stone and wood were built, allowing the water to be controlled. Pull up the gate and water is released down a path to fill lateral trenches along the rows of crops. Lower the gate and stop the flow of water. Many trenches without gates were opened and closed by removing huge rocks and mountains of dirt at the top of the trench and moving it all back after enough water reached the crops. This was an enormous and exhausting effort. The acequia system was ingenious, though. It used gravity to allow water to flow freely onto farm fields. And interestingly enough, it was regulated. Each acequia would have what's known as a mayorodomo, and that would be the ditch master. And it would be his job to make sure that no one was damming the ditch anywhere where they needed water and, and, and impeding that flow anywhere else. 
He'd be the one that would organize maintenance as it was necessary. And even in certain times, help the master farmers decide how much water was needed in each field and how long to water at that point. His set of rules and governances come from documents that go back to the 1490s, originating in Spain. I sat down next with park landscape architect James Oliver. He says there were seven total acequias in this area. Now only two remain, but they still function as they did nearly 300 years ago, at Mission Espada and Mission San Juan. Over the years, large portions of the other acequias got chopped up, filled in, and in general fell victim to San Antonio urban development. These two were spared largely because they were furthest away from progress. What was amazing to me was the design of these things. You know, people ask me, why is the San Juan Acequia seven miles long? Why is the Espada Ditch five miles long? Why is the dam so far upstream when all they were trying to do was irrigate the crops right outside the door of the mission? And the truth is that they understood very well the hydrology of this landscape. And they knew that the San Antonio River was higher upstream. Basically, the water bubbles out of the ground at the Blue Hole near Incarnate Word University at about elevation 650 feet above sea level. And it winds its way down to um, Corpus Christi Bay at elevation zero. So we have 650 feet of fall, basically, on the San Antonio River. And these Spanish engineers knew that if they went upstream far enough, they could take the water out of the acequia, out of the river, at the right elevation to be able to water the fields right outside the mission. Because the river right outside the door of the mission is 30, 40 feet below the level that they needed it. Wow, that's engineering, that's smarts. As my daughter says, they had a lot of smarticles. Uh, <laughs> Did the Franciscans have this figured out before they arrived? Yeah, San Antonio. Yeah, figure it out when they got here. I think, um, yeah, we see acequias all over the Southwest, right? Um, We're not certainly not the only place that has irrigation. I see it throughout Mexico, Arizona, New Max, Cali. But I think they were clever in the way they adapted their systems to each river, or to each river valley shape. Right, and San Antonio River Valley was just perfect for their style of irrigation and agriculture. There were seven ditches in the history of San Antonio, and um, the reason is there were five missions, and so each mission had its own irrigation system to, to irrigate the fields as an independent community. But there were also two other ditches that fed the people that lived downtown. We kind of forget about them, right? The Canary Islanders and the Bejareños, the folks that were settlers here in the San Antonio community, they had to eat. So there were two ditches, the San Pedro Springs, Acequia, and the Upper Labor Ditch. So that's how we got to seven. And all of those are basically goners. You know, there's snippets, there's pieces of them, there's remnants, but they aren't complete, and it would be virtually impossible to get water to flow down the other five. But these two here inside the National Park are protected in perpetuity, and we have two of them that are working. In addition to the acequias, there were other vital components to the water system. 
and you can still find them here. Built some 300 years ago, the limestone Espada Dam on the San Antonio River is still functioning. And two miles from the dam is the Espada Aqueduct. The success of the irrigation systems was dependent on a steady stream of water, but a small recessed creek with high banks interrupted that flow. So the solution was to build a raised aqueduct to move water at a constant level from one side of the bank to the other side, a bridge of sorts for water. It's pretty remarkable engineering, especially when you consider that this chunky limestone bridge arching 15 feet above the creek is the only remaining aqueduct built in the U.S. during the Spanish colonial era that is still functioning. When the Asequia systems were finished, they watered some 3,500 acres of mission farmland, and a lasting agricultural-based society was born. The Asequias also made their mark on the way the city of San Antonio is physically laid out. Early property lines were drawn around the Asequias. In fact, lots often had front footage right on them. The placement of some streets and buildings can also be traced to spots along the Asequias. We laugh because the roads in San Antonio are so weird, you know, especially downtown. Why do roads have a sudden kink and bizarre shapes? And a lot of it has to do with acequias. Because if you're building an irrigation ditch and you're, you're fighting gravity to irrigate, then here comes a road and you want to go parallel with that ditch as long as possible because you don't want to cross it because that's a bridge, right? You have to build some sort of bridge across the thing. So that's why you see the weirdest shapes of streets downtown. So that's kind of my, yeah, because, <laughs> <laughs> because the Asakias won, you know, <laughs> even though they're, even though they're, you know, many of those are long gone, their impact um, lives on. And uh, I think that's kind of cool. There's, uh, you know, remnants of, even in the, in the language from Asakia culture, like uh, Presa, South Presa Street, that means dam. And so literally, if you follow South Presa, it ran right up to the dam for Concepcion. And the dam for Concepcion mission was right downtown on the Riverwalk Loop, very close to the La Vita Assembly Hall. And so there's a street down here called Desagüe. And a Desagüe is, uh, is a drainage ditch that runs off of an acequia. So let's say you have to do a repair on the acequia. You can send all the water in the desagüe straight back to the river. It's like turning off the valve under your toilet. Send it back while you do this thing, then you can turn the water back on. So there's a desagüe street. There's still um, the Espada Ditch Company is an old-timey water management company still in place, still has a ditch master in place. I love that that culture is still alive. The San Juan side's a little more modern with a corporation, but but I love that. Um, and so for me, you know, well, 
I always laugh about, you know, does anybody speak Spanish here? Yeah. Uh, are there any Catholics in San Antonio? Yeah, I would say the missions were pretty successful, you know, establishing this community and uh, leaving, uh, leaving that mark on what San Antonio became. Sounds like they did. With a steady and reliable flow of water to the mission fields, large-scale farming blossomed. Food became abundant. Add the many dietary influences from the Spanish, and Native people suddenly had access to a broader menu. What kind of comida did the Spanish introduce? And what kind of lasting impact did that fusion of food have on Southwest Texas? In my fourth and final episode about the San Antonio Missions National Historical Park, I'll take you to Mission San Juan. It's all about food, so come hungry. I'm Lynn Riddick for National Parks Traveler. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Our coverage of the coronavirus impact on the national parks is largely made possible by listener and reader donations. Please help us continue this coverage by visiting nationalparkstraveler.org and making a donation today. Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Travelers coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.